What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Max Salonium, a young lion all the way from Australia who lives in New York, whose day job is a senior strategist at Initiative Media, who's currently in Cannes in the south of France, enjoying the academy, enjoying the events. It's his second time there. We're going to talk about all of that today. What's up, Max? Hey, doing, Mark? I'm doing well. This is your second time to Cannes. I've been there once for this, at least. And I, I went for a music conference a long time ago as well. And we're going to talk about the Cannes experience. And it's not going to be full of cynicism. It's going to be a curious conversation. We're going to see what Max has learned over his two tours to Cannes. The first one of which came from entering and then getting the opportunity to go to Cannes to compete in the, what's it called? The Young Lion competition. The Young Lions competition. Yeah. Tell us about how that happened. So each year Cannes puts, puts a brief out, I think in the areas of film, digital, I think marketing now, media, which is the one that I entered into, and maybe PR as well. And two people at any agency can choose to enter into the Young Lions competition and you're responding to the same brief as anyone else. So essentially you've got 10 10 slides and a PDF to put your best idea together and you send that off, a set of judges assess it. If you make top five, you're offered the chance to come and present to a different set of judges and that's the first time you present your idea in person with your partner And if you're then awarded the best of your craft across the country, you're sent to Cannes to represent your country. So that's a a 24-hour brief turnaround in Cannes. You get it on Monday morning. You have to present on Tuesday. It's pretty crazy and pretty full-on, but it's a lot of fun, immensely challenging, but a lot of fun. And I guess they sort of refer to it as a young Olympics of advertising in a way. And it's, I think, pretty refreshing to see the different approaches that that different countries and, and, and teams come up with, but each each country's representative goes through the same process in the sense that they've won their national competition and they're there representing their country and their craft. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you remember the first brief that got you shortlisted to go to Cannes and what your response was? Yes, I do. It was for a very small American charity called the Jack and Jill Late Stage Cancer Foundation who just do amazing, mind-blowing work. They're incredibly small but do a you know immense amounts of of, of work around the area of, of memories and giving these precious um, memories and experiences to late stage cancer families so in the same way that make a wish foundation you know treats a child with with cancer or illness with a really special experience the jack and jill late stage cancer family treats a family who has a parent who is who has a late stage cancer diagnosis to an amazing experience and, and our our brief was essentially to I think raise either raise the amount of donations or long-term commitments to the foundation over the next five years. And our, our idea was, you know, we were sort of playing off this tension or these two, these two divergent beliefs or territories around um, memories, which they're all about. That was their key proposition, their key attribute and money. And we just kind of thought that money was, you know, the antithesis of really positive, pure family me- memories. And we wanted to, you know, play off the concept of, you know, memories being a really important investment and um, we should be investing in our bank of memories, but all we seem to be thinking about is is money as both a, a bank and an investment. So I think, I can't remember the inside, I'm, I'm going to, this will be clunky, but it was something like, you know, what I just said, but 
you know, when, when we should be thinking about our bank of memories, all we are thinking about is our, you know, bank of money or how much money we have in the bank. And the idea was something called the memory card, which was really, really simple. We just encouraged uh, families through Facebook to print off these uh, new debit cards through Bank of America with a family photo um, embedded or printed on top of it. And when you withdrew money in an ATM, one cent went to the foundation. And the idea was just to link the concept of, you know, really positive family memories um, to the to the charity and have have ordinary Americans think about every time they went to withdraw money from a bank. Mm-hmm. And so they got shortlisted, and then you had to present it in person. In was it in New York? Yeah, present that in person in New York. It was yeah. it was kind of funny actually because it was done at UM, which is the sort of sister or brother agency of initiative. It was four floors above where I was, and. The, the other four teams had flown in from, from Seattle and Austin and LA and I think our presentation was at 3 o'clock and I probably left to go upstairs at about 2.58, whereas <laughs> the, other, the other teams had probably, I think they were in for 48 hours and they'd been locked in their hotel rooms preparing, stewing away over you know, presentation details and styles and order and I think it probably almost benefited me and my partner in the sense that we were doing client work for, for levels below the actual um, main meeting room and we didn't have that much time to think about either travel or the actual presentation itself we just sort of came in there and presented it yeah what was your teammate's name my teammate's called uh rachel hoffman who's who's now actually funny enough in australia okay and she's american so switch roles a little bit how did you feel in the room when you were presenting felt felt pretty good i think we went we went last out of five which i think is always a good position to be in when you're pitching anything, I think last or first. And we, we tried to do it with a, a smile on our face and, and truly make an emotional connection with, with the owner. We've done it. We've done a fair bit of research into who would be in the room beforehand. And it's probably a learning that I've stolen from a lot of pitch, pitch meetings and, and new business work, which is that, you know, understanding the people in the room and the, the lives and needs of the, the CMO or the client or, or the owner of the charity in this case is incredibly important in, in forming a personal connection and showing you understand their business and what really makes them tick. So we you know spoke to John, we spoke to him directly. We didn't really address anyone in the room, the, the sort of judges, it was all sort of directed at him and it was a pretty emotional pitch because that's the, the vibe we got from everything we saw from him, be it YouTube interviews or stuff we found on the website. So we felt pretty good about it. And I mean, I'm, I was still shocked that, that we won. And yes, suddenly sort of found ourselves on a plane to Cannes a couple of months later. Uh, okay. And so you, how far ahead of the 24-hour competition did you arrive at Cannes? Probably a day. It, it certainly wasn't long. I mean, I probably should have, we probably should have given ourselves a little bit more time to climatize, but we landed, I think, a day before the actual, the actual briefing. Okay. And then what was that brief and how did you approach it and what came out of it? So this brief, this brief, at least for me, this brief came out of left field. We looked at the past briefs for all of the Young Lions competitions and they tend to all be for, for not-for-profits and that's something which is consistent across both the national competitions and also all of the, the, the international main competitions that can itself. So we're planning for a not-for-profit. Last year it was, or the year prior to us, it was Amnesty International. I think the year prior to that was Red Cross. So I think, okay, some big not-for-profit that, has an important part to play in the world that's doing good for people that's what we're going to be responding on and we got in the room and the brief was for mozilla firefox so 
for anyone that doesn't know, it's, it's, it's a web browser. And again, that threw me for a bit of a spin because I was thinking it would be something, you know, charitable and something cause related. And while, while the client was quite keen to reiterate the fact that, you know, Mozilla itself is actually a not-for-profit entity and they're very, very different from the big conglomerates like Apple and Microsoft. Uh, for us, we still read it as being a, a really weird, challenging, challenging brief. I think the actual ask was um, convince web users that Mozilla Firefox is the home of a happier and healthier internet. I think those were the, the words used to okay. distill it down. Okay. Uh, what did you do? You had 24 hours. How many of the hours did you use? Where did you go? How did you work together? How soon did you think you had something? It probably wasn't until about 3 a.m. that I thought we had something okay. It, it was one of those things where I, I think you can probably trust trust your gut a little bit a little bit earlier. And in hindsight, maybe we left our run a little too late, but we wanted to lean on the success of the previous round and not go in trying to solve all, all of the problems or trying to pitch all of the attributes to all people and, and try and find just a really unique hook to attach the, the brand of Mozilla to and, and appeal to people in, in, in a sort of slightly different way. I think the audience they wanted to go after was, was social progressives, basically people that believed in a better, better quality world and were willing to stand up to corporations that, that weren't doing good or were using their, their, their data in, in bad ways. So we basically did a whole bunch of audience research and we found that the one thing that this audience was actually quite passionate about and went beyond a hobby was, was recycling. You know, we, we characterised this, like these people as, you know, the ones at the dinner table that are always, you know, ripping into you for putting the plastic in the wrong, in the wrong recycling uh, box or wrong cycling bin and you know recycling for them is very much something which they care deeply about and it's this it's this passion which they see as more than a hobby so we wanted to you know lean lean on the concept of recycling because I, I think in the end our insight was something like you know for years we've had recycling in the offline in the real world and it's been a great thing but what if we could bring recycling to the online world to make the internet a healthier and happier place and the idea, I mean, look, we, did, we didn't win and in, and in hindsight, I would probably change this idea, but the idea was around the concept of recycle the vial and it was taking all the little negative um, experiences and, you know, bits of rubbish and trash digitally that exist on the internet like broken links or hate speech and recycling that into positive actions or positive words in a way. So that was kind of our approach. We didn't end up winning. I think the top three were Belarus, Netherlands, and China. I can't believe I remember that, but it shows probably how bitter I am. And <laughs> we, yeah, we, we took a lot out of it. It was, it was an awesome experience. We got some, some, some good feedback from judges in the room, which was that, you know, the concept and I think the strategic thinking was sound and, and picking that avenue was right, but we probably tried to do a little bit too much with the tactics and if we simplified it into something like, okay, well, broken web links on Mozilla, let's make that an ode to like local communities or, or something, mm -hmm. a, a more sort of targeted, specific, tighter uh, media tactic would be a better approach next time. Mm. 
Yeah, I think I, I get that. That makes sense. Yeah, it's weird when you see, it's not necessarily a scattergun approach, but when you see a lot of tactics, hoping that having a lot of tactics makes the idea or strategy better, as opposed to one or two tactics done in a really unusual, provocative way. Yeah. How did you find presenting in the room? Truthfully, I was I was really, really nervous, a lot more nervous than I was in the, the, the previous national round, which is probably to be expected, but I've also been in, equally uncomfortable high pressure situations within the industry and I think done okay but for that I was I was I was pretty nervous and pretty shaky and it might have come down to the fact that we we arrived at and this is again pretty terrible in hindsight but we arrived down to where we're meant to present um only a couple minutes before because the meeting room was really really hard to find just beforehand I I said to Rachel I'm like I'm, I'm just gonna run to the the toilet quickly couldn't find it anywhere got lost, came back. I was a bit late. I was sweating and flustered, walked into this room with a bunch of judges and just, I, I just wasn't in the right headspace. That was a, a very, very important lesson for me. Mm, interesting. And then yes. what did you, how did you spend the rest of your time there? How many days did you spend in Cannes? So the rest of the time was incredible. Probably the most illuminating, eye-opening four days of my career. It was just basically going from talk to talk, stage to stage, just drinking in all of the, the insight that was coming off off the stage. And it, it really is just a who's who of the industry. I think you know, one, one thing that Can has tried to do quite a lot over recent years is diversify the type and source of talent on the stage. So I think, you know, when, when I would historically watch from afar, it might be, you know, an, an agency, an agency representative plus a client or, you know, an entertainment figure, an actor or actress or something. But I mean, here you have like all manner of professions from all corners of the globe. And for me, it was just going to those talks and then also just spending as much time as possible in, in, in the dungeon, in the basement where all the work's located. So in the basement, it's just, you know, rows and rows and rows of, of the work, which is basically um, the presentation boards of all the campaigns that have been submitted to CAN. So mm-hmm. you go in, read the one-page idea, get a good sense of it, move along, maybe take a picture if you love it, share it around. And that for me was a really, a really great use of time. Mm. All right. So you're back there this week. How many days are you in town? Here for five days, but it's a pretty, it's a pretty packed schedule. You want the most of it. And then, and then jetting off to, to London after this for a few days. And how are you spending the five days in France? So I'm spending five days here doing the Young Lions Media Academy, which it's, it's an extension of the competition in a way. It's a five-day intensive hands-on workshop where it's almost a curated, a curated track separate from everything happening on the stages and everything happening on the panels where Young Lions essentially pulls a lot of you know, different thought leaders in, in my field, they're within media and they'll come and talk to you for an hour and then someone else will talk to you for an hour and then uh, you'll work on a, a group project and then you'll do something else. So it's it's meant to be sort of quite hands-on intensive. There's 30 of us, again, from all, all around the world, all, all walks of the media business from publisher to agency, everything between. And in between those sessions, in between the, the work schedules, I try and squeeze out and catch a talk. Mm. Are you working on a particular brief or is it like separate mini, mini workshops that aren't connected? It's, it's mini workshops with, with the intent of 
solving this overall brief. And I use the word brief very, very lightly because it's not really a brief. It's essentially um, the, the the academy deans have said, you know, we'll pair you up in groups, pair you up. We'll, we'll group you together in, in, in teams of five and you'll come back and after this week present us a viewpoint on on what media is now, like what's media now. And it, it's meant to be loose and vague and it's very loose and vague. And I think they're just looking for us to showcase our our thinking and offer a unique perspective and hopefully it'd be, be a little bit provocative. I mean, at least that's the way that, that my group's approaching it. Mm. How do you find working in a group of five? So that's you plus four other people, right? Yes, yes. Is, is that too many people, not enough people? I think it's a pretty good amount. For me, the challenge lies in the fact that I met these people four days ago and as, you know, as I'm sure you and other people are aware, like I, I can work with a group of four or five people back home at the agency who I've known for three years and I, I might know their their styles and their talents and their characteristics inside out, yet we might still not be on the same page and we might still have issues working together. So when when you're working with people that are, you know, not just foreign to you but also come from different markets and have different levels of experience, you know, there's this acclimatizing period where everyone's walking on eggshells and that that sometimes means that it takes a little bit longer to get to a really pointy provocative solution that that's that's been my experience so far Mm -hmm. Uh, have you developed or contemplated ways of breaking those eggshells faster so that you can get to good thinking faster i probably should have but i mean it's been a process of Look, we'll we'll sit together at every at every talk, uh, at every workshop. We'll grab lunch together. We'll ask about where they're from. You know, brothers or sisters. What are you interested in? What do you do outside of the industry? And those things those things help. Probably could have answered and asked those questions as as soon as possible. But those are certainly helping to to break down break down barriers. Mm. Uh, what do you think the answer is right now? I guess you've got a day or two left, but what's the, what is the answer to what's media? Well, in the context of what's media now, the, the way that the, the way that at least I'm thinking of it personally, and I think our group's thinking of it, is that we've become incessantly focused on what's next at the expense of understanding what matters what matters now. And for for me, at least, we're, we're positioning this we position the Palais as this metaphorical glass bubble. Within that, there are a lot of prominent advertising executives and amazing thinkers talking to each other about the future of the industry. And on the outside of that, there are a lot of, you know, real people in quotation marks and locals just going about their lives and actually looking towards thought leaders and marketing professionals and media execs about media now probably isn't the best approach because we're in the industry where always thinking about what what's next. In fact, it's sometimes all people seem to talk about. So in reality, we've got blinkers on in a way and we felt the only people that could credibly talk to what media is now is a bunch of locals on the street because, you know, of all the, of all the people that could be thinking about what, what media is, is next or in the future, that's going to be one group of advertising professionals. I guarantee you that the ones that aren't thinking about you know, whether voice will be the next big channel in 2020 uh, are real people on the streets. They're only concerned about daily lives and, you know, how they, how they get their news now or what was last that they remembered now. So our idea was just to sort of turn the camera and the spotlight on them. 
mm-hmm. and consciously ignore all of the the talks and the um, prophecies of of those execs happening in the Palais. Okay, so real people on the streets of Cannes. Yes. Interesting. Interesting. I saw someone talk about how Cannes is like Fort Lauderdale, but French or something like that. I've been down to Fort Lauderdale twice this year, and I and I've been to Cannes a few times, so I kind of understand what that's getting at. <laughs> and what what did you find out? What have people said? Well, look, I mean, the first thing the first thing you get back, which is immediately apparent, is that God, people just people don't, they don't like ads or they don't claim to like ads at least. And I know that's a very simple and perhaps obvious summary of everything, but the degree to which people were you know, visibly annoyed when we you know, announced our, profession, our professions and, you know, what our project was, was really quite amazing to me. So they hate ads at, this, at the very same time I'm not sure, and indeed they're probably not meant to really understand how advertising actually works. So an example of that is we spoke to a really nice uh, old gentleman at a cafe. We sat down and we said, what was the last ad you remember seeing? And the first thing he started off by saying was, oh, I don't want, don't watch TV, I don't watch ads. Actually, I never pay attention to ads. I zap straight through them. Mm, but I remember as a, a car ad, I think it was a little while, it might have been for for Mercedes and so so it was it was just interesting because he started off with this like really rapid assessment that he doesn't watch ads doesn't watch tv yet eventually this this thought this memory rose to the the surface of his consciousness and he, he was able to recall the brand and I think there's a lot of that a lot, a lot of that playing into the answers which you can't really you can't really pull out from from surveys it's probably the one thing or you know the one sort of big fault with surveys in in a way is that people don't often do what they say. And that was kind of what we were sort of pulling at. So it's, it's taking with a grain of salt. It's both acknowledging that people don't like ads. I hate interruption, but at the same time, they probably don't, don't get all the ways that's subliminally working around them and behind them. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I think a part of that advertising thing, other than that, it can just interrupt what they actually want to do and interrupt their enjoyment. I think part of it is that people like to think that they're above persuasion. Yeah which is completely not true because most of what we do has, is some, like most of what we do, most of who we are, a lot of it is some, it's come from some kind of persuasion, which is what we could call culture. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, all right. Well, good luck with that. I'm interested to see how it goes. Uh, what have you, which talks have you gone to? Oof. Um, I, I caught the first 20 minutes of a talk with, David Droger, and I think probably this, the, the CEO of Accenture, I think, which was, uh, I mean, pr- probably one of the more anticipated talks. As you can imagine, it's sort of like the battleground of, you know, the industry right now and it's just a massive hot button issue. And, I mean, look, it, it, was, it was good. I think a lot of people, at least the people I spoke to, both that are in the academy and just you know, other people at the company and the network, you know, le- left a little bit disappointed because the main sort of, you know, obviously, you know, David Droger was very insistent that the acquisition of, of Droger by Accenture doesn't doesn't do anything to change the, the culture or the creativity and they're still Droger and don't worry, we're, we're still here, it's the same people who's sort of in the work. I, I think people still have a lot of res- reservations and, you know, the proof will be in the pudding. It's probably the, the, the big conclusion that, that everyone drew that I spoke to. Mm. 
And outside of that, um, there was a good one uh, that Twitter hosted, which was, I think, called The Internet Did We Ruin a Good Thing? Mm. And I mean, again, sort of coming back to the assessment that we just need to make better, more interesting, more, more, more relevant, surprising, and creative ads. Mm. Well, then, also uh, you've worked, you've walked around the work this year as well, right? What's stuck with? What's yeah. stuck with? Can you run me through a couple of? I'll call them campaigns or a couple of pieces of thinking that really resonated with you. Sure. So the big, the big campaigns. I think it's it's probably broken down into the, you know the campaigns that went across across categories across lines that everyone's talking about, and that's I think that's clearly and definitely Nike Dream Crazy and Burger King Whopper Detour, which have have been I guess all over the industry and and culture at large really for the past the past few months. I think I mean enough's probably been said about the Nike campaign. It's fair to say it's doing very, 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 very well at the festival. Burger King Whopper Detour is an interest, interesting one. And I think for me at least it presented a really good case study, uh, pardon the pun, as to how to actually get get great work out there from, from start to finish because as I was going through the basement and seeing all the work and seeing that campaign, only a few a few metres ahead of that was another presentation board, another idea, another campaign from Adidas called AR Drops. And in theory and even in strategy, it had the exact same approaches as Whopper D2. And so for those that don't know, Whopper D2 was basically like, you know, if you rolled up to a, a McDonald's drive-thru, you could uh, unlock a one-set a one cent whopper on the Burger King app, which you would then go and drive to a Burger King to redeem. Um, the Adidas campaign was if you went to a Nike store, Adidas would airdrop you a, a lens from which you could view uh, the, the shoes on your feet and then click through to buy at full price. So, it, you know, in theory, they had the makings of the, of the same concept, mm. but they just, they don't have any of the shortlist, any of the medals to go along with it because everyone seems to have awarded Burger King by virtue of how it was executed, the fact that it drove results. I think it was, you know, 1.5 million app downloads that, you know, seemed to revolutionize the business. It was sort of quite connected and smart end to end. Whereas I think out of that, while the concept might've been right, the notion of doing something a bit provocative and agitating that goes after a competitor, how they actually went about executing that probably mm. fell a little bit short. A bit, of, a bit of trolling in the name of a free burger. It's a, yes. it's a, good, it's a good case study. I saw uh, the global CMO of Burger King, Fernando Machado, present that in Mumbai. If you're new to Sweathead, this podcast, I interviewed him a few months ago. I really recommend listening to him and what he, what he talks about. He's a huge advocate for results, effectiveness, and creativity. And I don't know exactly how he is to work with day to day, but I appreciate that when he talks about team, he includes his agencies in that. And he knows that by doing that, he will get more people wanting to work possibly for him and his company, but also for the agencies that are his clients. And so it's interesting because everything right now is so public and everyone tears each other down about stuff. And it's so hard to do that kind of work. And they're doing it all around the world. They've obviously built a culture that disappeared for a few years. And I think it's, it's, it's amazing just to watch that. Yeah, I totally agree. It was, that was, again, another massive takeaway for me. I mean, the popularity of, of Whopper D2 as an individual campaign uh, was was one thing, but then it was reinforced by the fact that there was quite literally, you know, 
tens of other campaigns across the halls of the same brand from different regions, be it, you know, like I think the Eat Like Andy campaign was Andy Warhol. There was Craft of Western Whopper, which was something around Red Redemption. There was Blank Whopper where I think it was a campaign in Brazil where, you know, they found out that like 29% of people weren't were registering blank on the, on the voting cards. They gave out a blank whopper and told people to vote. I mean, some of these things probably are landing harder than others, but the fact of the matter is that they're, you know, they're on this one track path to sort of more, I think, creative, provocative, hopefully results orientated solutions, which is a great thing. I think for the industry at large. Mm -hmm. What have you learned about yourself this week? Wow. Um, I think the more you tend to go to these sorts of events, and this is an incredibly special event, which I'm very, very fortunate to go to, it starts to crystallize your own viewpoint on, on the industry. And, and I think it, it just helps you place your bets a little bit more and figure out what type, particularly what type of strategist you want to be and, and, and what do you want to promote? What do you want to get behind? What, not, not just what, what work, but, but what thinking. And I think that's, that's what I've learned most about myself. And I think, I guess sort of what I mean by that, and it always comes back to the project that we're working on, which is, you know, this position that there's a relentless obsession and focus on, on the new and shiny. And I, I still think that, that craft matters and, and discipline matters and marketing matters and sort of old school concepts of, of consumer psychology and persuasion don't just go away because retail models change or because new channels enter the market. That's, that's kind of how I'm sort of starting to form my viewpoint. And it's, it's, it's done so against a backdrop of, you know, a, a lot of change, particularly with, you know, the media and data side of advertising. And that's, again, probably an unmistakable takeaway from Can over the past two years is the, the sort of shifting centre of influence away from big holding companies towards, towards tech companies evidenced by the fact that they control the beach. So they kind of control yeah, yeah. the festival and they control the festival in a way. So that that's kind of... The, the biggest thing I got out for myself was just that, um, you know, craft matters, strategy matters. It doesn't change just because, you know, Facebook's got a new ad unit or because the new programmatic partner can, you know, right time, right message, right moment you. Um, and perhaps it's it's needed more so than ever. It, it sounds like that looking at, at some of the research on how creative effectiveness is going down while creativity, and you have to define these things and actually look at the actual research, creativity helps businesses outperform other businesses, but creative effectiveness is down. And ironically, I think it is because of some of these tech companies who just, they know, they know how to sell. It's like, no, you just buy here, we'll do it. It's programmatic, you don't have to think too much. Uh, just buy some stock imagery and we'll do multivariate testing, press the button, away we go. And then yeah. everyone, everyone starts to look the same. Yeah, and for, for someone like me, it's it's kind of hard to walk along the foreshore and escape the conclusion that we now care more about efficient distribution than we do ideas. Mm. I mean, that's that that's that's the very sort of small cynical part of me, like looking at the both like the location of Can and everything happening, but also the industry at large and what's happening there. And that's that's a, a bit of a sad thing because mm. you know we need big, dangerous, bold ideas probably yeah. more now than ever. Do you have techniques to switch conversations from efficiency to effectiveness in your day job in New York? I do. I, I tend towards, I mean, now at least, I think there's been probably a shift in the past two years or even 12 months where 
there's been this, this big groundswell of support behind, um, you know, an, an industry body like the IPA, you know, the name field, like effectiveness reports, the importance of creativity. I mean, the number which sticks in my head and which is probably embedded in a lot of people's heads is, is 11, which is, I think, the, the number which indicates, you know, how much more effective a creative campaign is on business results than a non-creative campaign judged on, you know, whether it's won an award at a major festival, I think. So, you know, we, I, I fall back on that research. I fall back on people who have been studying that for years as a means of proving out that, you know, long-term, if we're committed to a path of, of brand building and, you know, really strong strategic led courageous ideas, which surprise and delight people and, you know, excite them and get them to think a little bit differently that that's going to be a really sort of sound approach, but it can be a hard, a hard fight to win, particularly within the context of, of, of media and working really closely with media clients at brands because they're so used to having you know, real time reporting where they can see exactly what they're getting back from the money they're putting out into market. And they can, you know, look at a, look at a spreadsheet and think, Ooh, like that, that Facebook campaign is doing really, really well. Let's, let's just put some money here. And it, it can become this sort of game of you know, tinkering and playing around with the little you know, knobs on the dashboard without ever really sort of stepping back and, and seeing the bigger pictures. That's, I think, one of the challenges at least I'm facing personally and from, from what I hear, probably a challenge that other people are facing as well. So that might answer this question, but I'm, I'm curious to get your take on the, the health or the state of comms planning. You can take it as specific or as broad as you would like because I'm assuming you speak to people that don't sit right next to you at work. But like what's, you know, for those who are new to the idea of comms planning, to me one of the main thoughts in comms planning is that when a message or a campaign idea comes to life in an environment that connects to that idea. So if you're talking about anger and it comes to life where anger is or where anger could be or where people are the angriest, that from the research I've seen, not an academic, but from the research I've seen, that leads to more effective communication. Now it can be, it can feel less efficient to do because people are having to make decisions about things rather than trust what the computers tell them to do, what the algorithm tells them to do. So you do have to add some thinking there. What, what's your sense of the health of comms planning? Look, I'm, I'm, com- I'm coming into that question probably two hours off the, um, the media lines, you know, the communication lines, jury just doing a debrief on, on the work and the judging process. So I think I've got a pretty good read on it, at least, at least from, from their mind. And like my, my, my take based on their very, very or almost real-time feedback is that it's actually probably not in as greater state as it should be. And they're, you know, the, the people that were judging media lines and, and the communication design lines this year, while they were pointing fingers at a lot of different places, I think one of the things they bemoan is the, the separation of, of creative and, and media and something which a lot of other people were talking about, the notion that, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to find the right environment and places and times to place a message and to, you know, plan out a message and seed it out and time it out properly if you're not as sort of close to the creative idea and the people who conceived it as possible. So there's a bit of a disconnect really between 
what what the original intent intentions and origin of that creative idea are and the actual people who are, who are placing it and one of the things in 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 my mind that is happening is that the actual craft of media planning has been lost a little bit and what's probably reflective of that is there was 2156 entries put into media lines this year i think there was four golds and the biggest piece of feedback coming back from the judges was that just because you have a great creative idea doesn't mean you have a winning campaign or an excellent communications framework. In fact, that's often where it fell down was because, you, you know, you, you stopped halfway halfway through the journey and didn't do anything to, to give that, that campaign or that idea legs. You know, you didn't, you didn't put it in the right places. And it actually becomes immediately obvious when something has been put in the right places or when creative and media works, you know, really seamlessly and interchangeably together. I think a really good example of that is the the Air Max Graffiti Stores, which was a campaign from, I think, uh, AQK Chicago maybe, but that's something to check out. I think it's a really good example of the seamless, you know, inter- interwoven pursuit of creative and media and comms planning put together really, really nicely. And I'm pretty sure that picked up the Grand Prix in media. So that, that for me was the pinnacle of that. But I, I think there can be more, more craft within a bit, a bit more discipline within comms planning to ensure the creativity doesn't just stop at the idea actually lives in terms of the environments we place it in the type of tactics we choose to implement. Yeah. I mean, I, I judged well, I was one of the many judges on the Jay Chayat media awards a few years ago. I don't think we awarded the top prize at all. And it was amazing. So huge budgets obviously put into the campaigns, but also sometimes into the preparations of the, of the entries. And it was really impressive and yet some of the entries were, here's our campaign idea. We discovered that people used YouTube, so we put the video on YouTube. And, yeah. and that, that was an entry that took itself seriously and looked like it had a lot of time of people designing it and making it look good. And I was like, how is this even, an, like, who, why would you enter this? There's no thought there. That's, that's 101. Mm, and I think what's... What's also being asked a lot more of those sorts of entries into into comms or media or anything in that space now is that you know you can't continue to use reach and frequency as a as a business case because it's not and that the the notion of having vanity results like you know impressions be the only substantiation of the worth of the of the entire campaign or the comms framework isn't enough like it has to trace back to the objectives you're originally setting and that's where the art of you know comps planning and proper sort of problem diagnosis comes into it because if you say this is the problem and here were the barriers we had to overcome in comms and 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 the amount of impressions we got was you know 1.8 billion you know closed case film it's it's not going to get an award basically which i think is completely fair enough you know it, it doesn't show thought doesn't show rigor and it's not the way that I think Homs planning was intended to be run. Mm-hmm. So the Air Max graffiti store example, what was the thinking in that that turned you on? Yeah, so basically, again, the reason why I, I liked this one was because it was grounded in something incredibly, incredibly local and incredibly sort of cultural. And, you know, not, I mean, Nike, Nike's a brand that does, does this really, really well, but the reason, reason I think it comes across so well, not just with this campaign, but stuff like Nothing Meets a Londoner, is that it doesn't tap into personalization. It's just hitting local communities with something that's really sort of special to them. So this is for Sao Paulo. Um, they identified the fact that uh, graffiti art was a really sort of special part of the community, but 
government in place was starting to scrub it. It was sort of starting to um, become under threat and the people they wanted to speak to had a really strong affinity for that and they wanted to, you know, lean into local culture and get people buying their shoes but also get, get people respecting the art again. So they, they partnered with a young artist collective and even the artists that graffiti these original murals in Sao Paulo, they got them to go back out there and graffiti Air Maxes back onto their figurines, their characters, and then you could basically go there. Uh, you could buy the shoes through through Geotag, I assume, and there were a few other bolts and legs to it, but but that was kind of it. What also ended up happening was that the councillor or that the state governor got, got sacked and got removed from his position. So as a result of that, the campaign took on a little bit more popularity and Nike's response to that was to actually commission six new murals in celebration of that. So not only did they go and um, sort of update and refresh the old ones, they then commissioned a whole bunch of new ones and it sort of tapped into, again, um, not just the local culture of, of graffiti and artwork, but also the, the sneaky culture of scarcity. So all this stuff was probably only available for, I think, 24 to 48 hours. It all sold out. A bunch of people went online and caused a bunch of bunch of ruckus, bunch of press. Mm. That's that's funny. There were these spates of briefs that would fly around. One would have been, we need a new subservient chicken. Then there were these briefs that focused on joy and happiness. And now we've got the sneaker drop brief, which I'm sure thousands of people are looking at every single week all around the world, uh, yeah. which, which yeah. that kind of connects to, right? Yeah. The other, the other thing it pulled in, which is actually a weird little tactic trend, was was um, was airdropping as well. I know I, know I mentioned previously with the, with the Adidas campaign, but there was another campaign, um, ASBN and the NBA did a campaign uh, to get people watching live, live basketball, they airdropped them essentially an ad when they were around local basketball courts saying, hey, don't watch this, watch this instead. And, I mean, I don't know how you feel, but I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure if that's, that's the path we should be going down as far as distribution of message and idea because it seems, it seems to be just falling back on those same mistakes that we've been told not to repeat, which is that you know, it's interruptive, it's a bit annoying, people aren't really expecting it, people don't really want it. It's not creating an idea that's, you know, insightful and novel that captures imagination and attention outside of a simple hack. So, yeah, I, I don't know how, how you feel about it, but that was something which a lot of brands lent on. Were they doing it in a way to reach a lot of people or were they doing it in a way to film for their case study? I, I suspect the latter. But, I mean, cause it's, not, it's, it's, it's probably never going to be a, a rage play, but it kind of looks good if it's a again, a, a creative use of media, but then again, I'm not sure if it is. Mm, interesting. What has struck you in your second, now that you've been to Cannes twice, what struck you about media there or environments that you could do something interesting in? It's a vague question, but are you, as you walk around, as you, as you breathe in that beautiful Southern mm. French air, are, are there things that you're seeing in Cannes that, a different that you think you could play with as far as media goes? Mm. I think the one area where a lot of brands and agencies are trying to win or innovate within media is at, is at home. I, th- I think it's, it's, it's the new battleground in, in a lot of ways, both because 
things like like street murals and colossal meters becoming really popular, but also now from from a digital and data sense, it's it's very easy to serve you know more targeted programmatic um, messages through that through that channel than ever before. Spend I think is up eight percent year on year. So out of home I think is a space that everyone's looking at, but I don't think anyone's doing a really really good job of it. I mean for for me. Like if you think about what its what its benefit is as a as a channel or a touch point, like I, I think it's it's visual, it's high impact, it can be visually arresting. It's probably it was probably the best channel or maybe the second best channel behind TV and video for the Nike Dream Crazy campaign. So when they have a like just an awesome fresh new insight to say with a beautiful high res image and a superstar behind it, like out of home's a great a great spot for that. And one of the things. I saw at Cam, which I'm not even sure was best used to platform, and probably almost the opposite was, you know, Accenture took out this massive billboard promoting something they're calling the digital doggy bag, and it was just their brand logo with the URL on it. So I think it's digitaldoggybag.com. If you go online, you redeem, you, you get this sort of collection of, of of notes and videos and interviews from people on the ground at Can. And I don't think it was that great. And then again, the execution itself wasn't that great. But look, I mean, that, that's one space. The other thing which I mean, has caught my attention is, is stencils. And, that, and that's because they're probably, I think they're illegal in a lot of places. But when something is surprising and not meant to be there, it tends to open your eyes a little bit more and maybe quite literally stop you in your tracks. So I've seen a few, a few stencils getting around. Hmm. What's... Old is new again. What's well, new is old again, I feel, with yes. the stencil thing. Very interesting. So if someone's... Okay, last question. If, if someone's curious about competing in the Young Lion competition, I mean, you've been in agencies which have a history of supporting that and of funding the trip as well. If, if someone doesn't have that, if they're trying to work out how to get into the competition and to get to Cannes, do you have any advice for how to make it happen and then also how to approach the thinking for the competition itself? Yeah. Firstly, get to know the dates, get to know what, what craft you'd be entering in. So you know, obviously creative agencies tend to enter into film or, or print young lines. Then there's, I think, digital for digital agencies and, and media for media agencies. So, so get to know your, your category, what it requires of you, what the um, criteria is for winning. And then understand when you have to enter. The other big important thing is find a great partner. I probably can't, you know, I probably can't overstate how important that is. Naturally, like you'll be working with this person pretty closely. And it's important that he or she doesn't have the same track mind as you when it comes to work. I think if you can find people from or find a partner rather from from an opposing discipline or craft, that's gonna be great. I'm not sure maybe they do, but I'm not sure two strategies actually work that that well together or, or to, to copywriters, let's say. Um, the other great thing about Can Young Lions and the competition is that it's, it's obviously free to enter. It's, it, it doesn't require much of you except a killer idea and 10 slides to tell the story. You shoot, you shoot it off and hopefully if it's good enough, you find out about, you know, the top five result. And that's the point at which you have to petition your, your agency to fly you out I think one of the one of the important assets that you might have in your back pocket is the fact that if you do win, not only is it a massive fill up for you personally, it's a massive fill up for the agency, 
And also there's always a presenting a response or agency of the competition. So the reason why the, the media Young Lions was held at UM last year was because UM was sponsoring and um, they're the ones that actually pay and, and will send you to Can and they'll put you up and they'll pay for your accommodation as well. So the actual cost that the host agency or your personal agency bears isn't often too great, yet the rewards both for you personally and the agencies are immeasurable. Mm. In terms of feedback and, and help for the actual, the actual idea, the actual solution, I, I would just you know, h- highly encourage whoever enters to think about just simplicity, 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 which is often a hard thing to achieve, but it's always going to be more persuasive. Mm. And particularly for judges that are pouring over hundreds and hundreds of briefs outside of, sorry, hundreds and hundreds of responses outside of their day job, the thing which catches their eye and the thing which makes sense is often the simplest. And it can be intuitive. It might seem basic to you, but that's what's going to cut through. So keep it really, really simple, smart, digestible, and have an idea. I mean, whether you're in media or PR or film or whatever, just say, hey, here's our idea. Because ultimately, it's an ideas competition. You're trying to win a spot to the Festival of Creativity. You're not going to get there by saying, you know, our media platform is, you know, like reinvent the uh, out-of-home experience for young millennials. It's, it's, good, it's going to be something that's probably a bit more catchy, a bit more culturally led and something a bit more creative. So you always have to think with idea in mind and this is probably uh, not, not advice that, you know, my boss or old school media strategist would think of, but I, I think you've got to think idea first and foremost and then worry about how you're going to distribute it. Like you, you, you can't ever go into a, a young lines media competition thinking about, okay, like what are we doing on Facebook? What are we doing? Yeah. You know, what's the TV ad look like? It's just going to be about like, let's come up with a, a killer idea. Let's land a nice, smart, simple insight that makes sense immediately. And we'll worry about putting it out to people later on. Yeah, there's definitely something with media or anyone who's in the kind of communications channel space of media, digital, social, whatever we want to call them, where if you present a lot of little things, someone will say, what's the thing? And your answer to that cannot be, it's all these things. Because someone will then go, no, no, what's the thing? <laughs> a lot of people jump over the yeah. idea, get into all the little bitty stuff. Uh, and if you do go through these things, there are there are definitely situations where agencies might ask you to commit to staying with them for an extra year or so. So that's not uncommon. Um, not sure how I personally feel about it all. It sort of introduces a weird disincentive, but it, it happens. I'm just, just putting it out there. We don't often talk <laughs> about these things. Uh, and also you might get an opportunity. Well, they'll probably ask you to come back to the agency and present. Uh, and that's a great opportunity for you to, again, pay even more attention to your time at any conference like this and then to build your voice inside your company and, if you can, put it out on the internet so that you build a little network for yourself. So lots of little bonus ripple effects can happen. Absolutely. And the other thing which I would also encourage as well, and it's probably something which I've taken away from this particular can, is that data can't do all the work for you and it's not meant to. And if you continually follow the same the same sorts of data as everyone else and you do it in the same way, you get the same results and that's, gonna not, that's not going to make you stand out. So use, use it to your advantage, but don't use it the whole time and don't just use the same sources. Mm-hmm. Love it. Uh, Max, where are you most active on the internet? Uh, I don't have Instagram. Facebook's pretty, uh, pretty limited for me these days. So Twitter or LinkedIn would be the spot. Twitter is just my name, Max Slonum, and LinkedIn would be the same. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining me from France. 
today. I'm sure that you've got some fun stuff to do this evening, your time. So may you go and enjoy that. And uh, we'll see you back in New York sometime soon. Thanks for having me, Mark. Peace.